The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. For today's episode, I'm joined by Ben McEwen of Dowgate Wealth for a conversation with Alistair Haynes, the founder and chief executive of Aquis Exchange. Aquis is an aim-listed exchange services business. Alistair founded Aquis a year after he sold his previous exchange business, ChiX, for an estimated $300 million in 2011. Aquis is today the world's first and only subscription-based share trading platform, offering its customers a zero marginal cost to trade. This process innovation has enabled Aquis to take market share from the larger and more established exchange groups. As Alistair says, one day, everyone will trade this way. By focusing on the needs of its customers, the Aquis platform has steadily grown to provide more than 20% of all liquidity in European large-cap equities, while transacting about 6% of all volume. Alistair's predisposition to see change positively has enabled him to adapt to an ever-changing trading environment of the last three decades, with instrumental roles at stock exchange disruptors ITG, ChiX, and now Aquis. Alistair talks about how his family history with alcohol and an interest in gambling odds helped him to become a currency trader. In today's episode, we learn about how staying on top of technological change is important, how Aquis has the vision to be the NASDAQ of Europe, and how business failure should perhaps be seen as a marker for future success. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Alistair Haynes. Hi, Alistair, and thanks for joining us today. I'd like to start by taking you back to your early life, your journey into the city and the path you took. What made you decide to go into trading rather than to the other options that were available at that time? First of all, I joined Barclays Bank and suddenly realized that this wasn't the future for me because they wouldn't put you in the fast track and everything. And I thought, well, that's not for me. And I left and I joined this company called Morgan Grenfell. I worked in the cashier's department for a period of time. And the great thing about that is I was able to go around the bank and find out the areas I liked. And the area I really liked was the trading area. So I went up to the head of trading on one day and just said, look, you know, I'm Alistair Haynes and very interested in getting into trading. And he took one look at me and said, well, you went to private school. I went, well, yeah. And he said, well, we don't really take people from private school here. You know, you won't have the talent or the ability to do anything. So I pushed and I, absolute true story, I got out my wallet and got about six or seven bookmaking accounts. And so I said, well, actually, I've got an interest in sort of gambling and speculation. And I know trading isn't the same thing, but, you know, I'm interested in odds and statistics. And he said, okay, I'll give you an interview. And again, I absolutely swear this is a true story because it's ironic. They took me to a place called the Jamaica Wine House, very well-known city establishment, uh, well-known as the Jam Pot. Literally, my office overlooks it. So I sort of start my career probably in the Jam Pot and will probably finish my career in the Jam Pot. My interview was drinking a bottle of white port. And they said, you know, if you can survive and walk back to the office, we'll give you a go on the foreign exchange market. And the two things in my life and my family, one is my great-great-grandfather started off a business. He was a duker, and duker turned in the end to be Scottish and Newcastle, the breweries. So alcohol was in the family and in the blood. So I probably at that age could drink quite well. And the second thing, of course, was I loved the gambling and the statistics and the numbers that went with it. So I was able to stagger back. I can promise you I've never drunk white port to this day. I hate the stuff. Absolutely disgusting drink. 
but I survived and that's how I became a trader. And uh, I've loved it ever since. Absolutely loved the business. Over that period, you know, the city's changed in so many ways. Exchanges and trading technologies have changed dramatically I and mean, beyond all recognition from our early days. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the market floor and the days of gentlemanly capitalism. You know, the main means of communicating with clients was in writing or by phone and settlement was via a fortnightly cycle of account periods. You know, I could go on. But what's remarkable is that you've adapted to these changes, alighted upon a disruptive strategy after a long career at a time when most people would be sort of happily retired to play golf. What do you attribute your staying power and adaptability? I'm a non-conformist, always was, was at school, left school at 16, did my A-levels very young and didn't want to go off to university, wanted to get into sort of finance and just believe that things need to be done differently. And I love, I absolutely love, which most people don't change. And I think, you know, I too was worked on the floor of the exchange. We worked out how to price options at a sort of fairly early stage. And I was an options market maker down on the market floor. I've always seen the benefit of technology. And I suppose I've spent my life, all 40 odd years of it in the city, looking at trying to make things more efficient. Change is hugely important because it gives you opportunity. I don't think you do this to necessarily make friends. You do it because you think you're doing something for the better, for the better of the economy or better markets or better trading. And that actually is what we try and do at Aquis, is we're trying to make a better, more efficient marketplace than we see today. That's really interesting. You obviously had a really long and varied career. When you look at founding Aquis, what do you think your key learnings have been? You know, when you look at your time spent on the floor, pricing options at ITG and then Chi-X. You've got to be passionately involved with technology, not an expert in how it all works, but as a user of it. You've also got to have a pretty strong-willed mind about you can improve things and you can see the way that markets ought to be. And then in some ways, you've got to smooth talk people into accepting that that is the way going forward. And funnily enough, I mean, I feel really, really lucky. I've had some massive opportunities. And the first one obviously was with ITG and the creation of dark pools. In those days, they were called crossing networks. It's the media who's changed it into this sort of evil sounding thing of a dark pool. When we started that, and I had this idea of crossing networks back in the mid nineties, people honestly sort of thought, you know, I should be taken away with men in white coats and locked up. And this was an American phenomenon. It was never going to happen over here. And I just had this great belief that the issues about liquidity in America are no different to anywhere else where we have issues of liquidity. And then you know, for me, I, you know, ITG was one, ChiX was another. Nobody believed ChiX would work. There were 23 attempts to break stock exchanges over the years. I certainly can't name them all, but they go back to things like Ariel and TradePoint and all these others that you know, didn't succeed. So it was quite a challenge to take on something that had never succeeded before. And in the end, ChiX Europe became the largest exchange platform in Europe. We had 20% market share of all European trading. I've heard you talk about ITG and the crossing networks. What I don't understand is I know all those names you refer to, I remember clearly as being threats to the traditional life of an institutional stockbroker at those times. What I don't understand is what was the differentiation of ChiX? What made that successful in this sort of evolutionary process? Well, at the time, we used to say 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper, 10 times more efficient. 
that was the sort of the tagline we had. We had better technology than the standard markets. We brought in the maker-taker model, which meant that we paid people who supplied liquidity and you charged people who took liquidity. That was revolutionary over here. And we think the national exchanges, I believe, made a big mistake by the new liquidity providers were the technology-driven high-frequency trading firms and market liquidity providers. And these people were very significant in the market. And the national exchanges at the time didn't really appreciate or didn't want to provide services that were effective for them. And we saw that as an opportunity. So we were very popular there. This make-or-taker pricing changed. And of course, once you'd built market share in a few stocks, the thing just snowballed. And I think like all great ideas, they come when you're not expecting them. And Aquis was formed because having sold Chiex to bats, I didn't quite know what on earth I was going to do. And I was buying a mobile phone for my son, who ironically now works in the company, in our infrastructure team. And that's where the penny dropped. The epiphany moment for Aquis was looking at a telecoms company like Vodafone and going, it's exactly the same as a stock exchange. What do they do? They manage a network. It literally is about message traffic. And they charged on a subscription model. And of course, stock exchanges don't. They charge on an ad valorem basis, you know, a percentage of value traded or in America by shares. Subscriptions change your life. Everybody listening to this will have a subscription or number of subscriptions in their daily life, whether that's Spotify or Netflix or Sky or some telephone contract or Amazon Prime or whatever. These companies have been some of the fastest growing companies in the world over the last 15 years. And this marginal cost of zero is incredibly attractive. And my view was everybody complains about lack of liquidity. It doesn't matter if it's in major stocks or if it's in small cap and growth companies. If you can find a mechanism that allows more trading at a cheaper and more effective way, then you've got to introduce it. And we became, and I think today still are, the world's first subscription-based exchange business. And that's how Aquis were launched. And that was eight and a bit years ago. And why have another exchanges followed you down this subscription route? It's interesting. I mean, it's an arrogant statement that we make on every presentation is one day all trading will be like this because it does take time. What we wanted to do is bring choice to the market. So we brought in a rule that said, if you're a proprietary trading firm, you can't actually cross the spread. Now, what does that mean? It's the same thing that if you are a market stall holder in a market fair, you can't actually go to other people's stalls to buy and sell your goods. You can only deal with people who come to your market. In other words, those people who buy from you are the only people you can trade with. And we created an order type so that that would happen. Now, that made me particularly unpopular with a lot of people. In fact, I received my first trolling and hate mail at that point in time, which was not a very pleasant experience. However, it differentiated us from the market. And today, we have, and this is what people only get shocked by, 22% of all the liquidity in the top 1,700 stocks across 15 markets in Europe is at the best bids and offers in depth and size performed by Aquis Exchange. Now, that makes us, you know, outside of the national exchanges in their own markets, the largest liquidity provider in Europe. We execute around 6% of the market. That makes us the sixth or seventh largest exchange group in Europe. So whilst many people may never have heard of Aquis as a company or the name, we are actually very significant in market structure. That is the reason why 
as we grew our business and we continue, and that's why we're very confident about our future, if you've got 22% of the liquidity and you're executing between 5 and 6% of it of the total market, then there's no reason why you can't get to 10, 12, or even higher percentage of the total market. And that would make you a top three player. Before we go on and talk about the Aqua Stock Exchange, which I'm very keen to do, can we just go back and talk about your differentiation in terms of the Aquis Exchange? I just want to understand the importance of reducing toxicity. I can't answer what is the thing that has driven the success between whether it's the subscription model or whether it's the lower toxicity, because combined, they're very powerful. Because we have this massive pool of liquidity, and we have it because, in effect, we've created a protected market. People are very worried when placing orders in other markets that they might get hit at the wrong price. And this is a lot of low latency. This is not what I would describe as just pure high frequency, but it's certain strategies that are used by people that actually can create market price movements. And any listener to this podcast will know that if they bought and sold any shares, it doesn't matter if it's large cap or small cap, prices move away from them. And they do move much, much quicker and at a smaller size than you would anticipate. What I can say, and we can evidence very, very clearly on the Aquis exchange, is that our prices move in a different way because we have this rule. And it is just a rule. It's not a particular form of technology. This sounds quite straightforward algorithm in what is, I'm sure, a very complex engine. But anyone could do this. There must be a reason why, shall we say, the more mature exchanges choose not to. The mature exchanges choose not to because of this is why it's linked together. Because quite often, these players play a very, very significant part of the revenue of these companies because they are charged on this ad valorem basis. And therefore, if they pay a fee, whether it's make a taker or whether it's a straight ad valorem fee, this is a significant revenue stream for exchanges. We do not make our revenue that way. We make it as a subscription. In other words, we charge you on message traffic starting at £2,000 a month for 2,000 messages a day. And a message is an order, a cancellation, a correction. And this goes right the way up to £80,000 a month for unlimited messages. So for £80,000, a customer of ours, a bank, will be able to trade 15 markets in Europe, and they'll be able to trade all their stocks, and they get unlimited data, and they get unlimited connectivity. They have this wonderful marginal cost of zero. So their costs of trading collapse. But on top of that collapse, you get the fact that the impact costs are significantly lower. So when they trade, again, I can evidence and show you that the way that our prices move are very different to every other platform in Europe certainly lit platform, and actually better than an awful lot of the dark platforms, the dark trading platforms. And if the price was to move just one, what's called a tick, the lowest price that you can move, which is set by the regulators, so the minimum price movement, we have calculated the difference between a trade on our platform versus the other platforms is worth about £1.1 billion a year to the end investor. That's a very significant sum of money. It's more than one week's pension for every private pensioner in this country. So if you can save that money and get better performance, so you're saving and producing a better result for the end investor, that's the asset manager or the retail broker, whoever is acting on behalf of the retail client. So the asset manager acts as the retail client because 
they're looking after the funds for pensions or saving schemes, etc. If the end investor is better off and the bank gets a reduction in fees because of the subscription model, then actually everybody wins but the current exchanges. So why won't other people do it? The first thing is exchanges don't want to cap the upside through the model, through the subscription, and they certainly don't want to lose the customer base that they have by taking away the fees, the very significant fees that many of these low latency players will give to the exchanges. So for us, we set about it in a completely different way. We had the model on its head, in other words, because we had the subscription, because we charge by message traffic, we think it's a fairer and better way. So one challenge on that, and I get it completely, and you've grown steadily and strongly, you've produced fantastic results, before and since IPO. Why hasn't this market grown quicker? Why hasn't it been adopted more quickly? And the other thing I want to understand is this difference between the liquidity provision and your market overall volume share. Will they naturally converge? Well, the adopted more quickly is simply down to what I said at the very beginning about change, behavioral change. It's very, very hard to change people. And the city in particular, it's always. So we've always said, even during the IPO process, this is a longer challenge, but we are absolutely convinced. The hardest part is getting the liquidity. So again, if I go back to the analogy of a market fair, you know, no fair is good if it doesn't have a lot of stalls with a lot of goods to be sold. So you have to get that liquidity. And this takes me on to your point about what we call the paradox, which is this we have 22% of all the liquidity, and yet we only execute between 5 and 6%. And that is because people don't necessarily use us the way we think we should be used, and they might not be connected. Today, we have 30-something-odd clients. We think the opportunity there is 80-odd clients, and not everybody is connected to us. Once you start evidencing people, evidencing to people, that you have a better liquidity which doesn't move as much and you can prove it academically and scientifically, then you can start changing minds. And this is the point about behavioral change is that people won't change from the current status quo unless they see a significant benefit to them. Could you just tell me what the issue around the consolidated European tape, I think I've got that, term correct, and how it might work to the benefit of Aquis. This seems to be a topic that's been circling you and the industry for several years now. I just suspect that perhaps the the, uh, term consolidated and European might have something to do with the fact that it's not been resolved, but that might be just me. We may end up with two consolidated tapes post-Brexit, so one for the and one for the UK and maybe UK and Switzerland. But the consolidated tape has two benefits. The first is you can't actually prove really best execution unless you have a standardized real-time tape of record. So in other words, if you don't know what the real prices of trading are and it's actually recognized and standardized, how can you actually prove that at that point in time this was the best trade? So for us, 
really, really important. And they tried to do that in MIFID II. And frankly, they did it very badly. They expected the market to solve the problem. Well, vested interests never solve a problem. In fact, vested interests are the biggest preventer of innovation. So it is asking why, you know, turkeys don't vote for Christmas is the famous saying. You know, why would people want to change? It's not actually in the shareholders' interests of the people who are working in the industry to make these changes. So it's got to be forced. So the first thing is it benefits best execution. The second thing why people think this is benefiting Aquis is that if we go the method of the United States, which has a consolidated tape authority, startup exchanges find it a lot easier because they get paid by the consolidated tape authority because the regulation is it's mandated that every platform has to provide data to the consolidated tape authority. They set the price of data, which is materially cheaper than what it is in Europe today or in the United Kingdom, multiple times cheaper. And as a result, they then charge that fee and then will take the costs of running the tape and then pass that back to the platforms. So the platforms get a revenue stream. Now, today, we make a small amount of money. We announced in our latest results you know, that we had increased because we started to charge non-members for data, which we don't charge our members. But if a consolidated tape happens, we would be, if our market share grows from 6% to 10% or higher, we would make a significant revenue stream because the tape authority would pass that money back to us as an exchange. So it can be a material difference. Now, there's no guarantee that a consolidated tape is going to happen. I think what we've seen over the last six months is a lot of movement in the right direction. And I am a great advocate for obvious reasons of a consolidated tape. You'll guess that the national exchanges across Europe are not so keen because they make, I think in total, the last recognized number was around about a billion euros a year out of data services. So obviously, this is not something they want to gift away at a markedly reduced price. But of course, I think that battle is now lost by them. I think the regulators and the commission, and actually looking at the regulators in the UK as well, are now keen to push for a consolidated tape because Go back to the beginning point, it makes a better market. It makes a better market. You can prove best execution. For us, we're one of the beneficiaries of that because it brings a revenue stream we don't have today. And I guess you'll be able to prove your best execution in a more formal way. Absolutely. You know, I am massively data-driven in the way we look at things. When I started in the city, it was very much, you know, just trust what somebody says and you get that order because, you know, I believe in that person or whatever it is. Nothing wrong with that relationship, which is important. Today, you want to have that relationship with people, but you want to spend your time instead of talking about who won the cricket and who won this or whatever, but actually talking about the data that's there and evidencing the facts. And the great thing about the changes in the last 40 years is technology. We have the capability of doing things we could never do 40 years ago. Did I always believe we're in the primary market? Yes, I did. If you look at the vision statement, if you come into our offices, you'll see the vision statement for Aquis is to be the leading exchange services group. Exchange services means not just being a platform for trading, the secondary trading of equities, large and small cap, but it also means being involved in the primary space and also in the area. We need to look at in the future, you know, what's going to happen to settlement, the custodians, the the way things, you know, we're looking at distributed ledger technology. We look at different ways of atomic settlement and all these sort of things could be in the future. I'm not saying we're doing any deals in that right now, but it's something that if you're an exchange services group, then you've got to look and monitor and be eventually a part of. You mentioned the importance of 
primary listings for an exchange services business. What are the problems you're looking to solve with the Aquistock Exchange? The problem I think we have in the UK is that because when a company goes public, it's like sending four-year-olds to university. There's no proportionality. There's no appropriateness of trading. It's a one-size-fits-all method. I think that's completely wrong. And I think if we are going to do what is necessary post-Brexit and post-COVID and get capital to growth companies that are in the United Kingdom and eventually across Europe, we have to find a mechanism of getting the public back into public markets. We need to find that flow. We need to find easy access for people. We need to get capital out in a more effective way through the public markets. Today, people go off to private equity or they go off to banks and they get loans or whatever. The public market is always the last port of call. It's been expensive. It's been complex. It's been difficult. It should be the first port of call. We have a protection mechanism for the banning of selling. We have a market making scheme with eight market makers now who are signed up to a scheme, which we are going to issue warrants in our stock exchange business, go back to the old days where stock exchanges were partly owned by its members. And in return for those warrants, these market makers have to make a price no greater than 5% to retail. Now, why do we focus on retail? Because it's retail that really is the petrol for liquidity that gets institutions interested to buy stock. One doesn't really have to be Nostradamus to know that if you connect the retail and you have market makers providing competitive capital, then you'll see spreads fall, volume increase, and liquidity begin to arrive. And that's exactly what we're doing on the Aquis Stock Exchange. We've seen spreads decline by 64% this year. We've seen liquidity or turnover increase by 700%, admittedly from very low levels. But we think this will continue. And it's very attractive. If you want to attract companies to come to your exchange and actually say, why are you different? Well, we're protecting you by having no short selling. We're providing liquidity for you and access to the retail market because we've got market maker schemes. We've got over 60 companies coming in the next year that absolutely love the story we've got. We make money because I believe we are going to get many hundreds of companies over the next few years who will come to our marketplace and they will grow with us. And we will build that relationship with them, their advisor and us, something which doesn't happen on the A market. This nomad structure you know, creates a sort of form of Chinese whispers. We want to work with these companies alongside the advisors and grow with them. And in effect, that turns you into a NASDAQ of Europe. What NASDAQ did in the 1990s, when they took all these tech companies that nobody knew how to value, most people said incredibly overvalued, and they didn't go to the gold standard of the New York Stock Exchange, they went to NASDAQ. And then we all know what happened in 2000, the market crash, the tech bubble burst, and everybody said, that's the end of technology. Well, funny enough, Spotify, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, whatever. It wasn't the end of technology. It was a complete rebirth. What we're positioning ourselves is we think that in the digital asset space, the new economy space, the e-commerce space, the educational space, there are just so many pharma, biotech, fascinating business that came to us on Monday, which is looking at quantum technology, quantum computing. We think it's the first company anywhere where people can invest actually in quantum technology. What you're describing here is an opportunity to build a business that could be bigger than your current main revenue driver. 
I think this is a transformational business for us. We don't, as we've said to our investors, make huge income out of this in the first few years. We've taken it from being a one and a half million pound loss, and as we announced in our results recently, to a hundred thousand pound loss on the exchange for the first six months. We believe the stock exchange business will be profitable. Our exchange business, as you nicely said at the beginning, where it's a profitable company and, and we're a high growth company. We've for the last two years been one of the top five hundred fastest growing companies in Europe. You've talked about the work you've done among emerging exchanges and venues for trading different types of assets. Can you give us some examples of the type of work that's been done there? And has any of these been with sort of digital asset exchanges and venues? And have you considered investing any of them? The ones that are public, I can absolutely say the ones that I'm under NDA, I'll go to jail if I tell you so, I would rather not. We don't want that, no. So some sort of general high-level descriptor would be great, just so we... I can actually mention names. Archex is a digital asset company. It's the first regulated digital asset company in the United Kingdom. We supply the matching engine technology for them. In South Africa, the first competitor, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, the first one to actually go out and compete directly with them, it uses Aquis technology. So there's an example of an equities market, but there's an example of a digital asset. We've seen this sort of Cambrian explosion of activity in crypto assets to decentralized finance and decentralized trading venues. It sounds like you see this as a more of an opportunity than a threat to the business. Absolutely. I don't really have a strong opinion about digital assets, the cryptocurrencies, which one's going to succeed or which one's going to fail. I'm fascinated by the technology that sits behind them. I'm fascinated by the businesses themselves and non-fungible tokens. We have you know, NFT investments floated on us this year. I don't see any of these people as a threat to what we're doing. We do see ourselves as the technology supplier. And I suppose if you look at the gold rush in the Americas, the people who made the money out of the gold rush actually sold them the shovels. So you've described Aquis in its different forms, the divisions with different products. What do you think it will look like in 10 years' time? Will it still be an independent entity? Will it be several different businesses? Will it be bigger than the London Stock Exchange? That's a very hard question. You well know the rules of what I can as a public company say not. I am still passionate about this business. I believe we are literally starting our journey. We're nowhere near the end of the journey at all. I absolutely won't say, are we going to be bigger than any other exchange or not? I don't think that's like selling a free call option. Because the great thing about our business is, based on message traffic, do you really care whether the message is about an equity, a derivative, a commodity, a fixed income product, a a cryptocurrency, or whatever? And this is what I love about the model, is that it's really, really about messages. We're a telephone company. We're a network. And I think that's what exchanges so far haven't seen themselves. My only comment with the London Stock Exchange is they're turning themselves much more into a holistic data provider. You know, They are the creator, the distributor, and the sort of creation of then indices and others for data. It's a holistic approach to data. And I worry, and there's a slight smile on my face because I'm not too worried that they go down this path, is that you know the purpose of a stock exchange, you must never forget, is to provide finance for companies. That's what we're here for. You have a good secondary market because you can lower the cost of capital for a company that wants to do secondary capital raising or needs to raise capital in the primary, and therefore you create a good secondary market. The purpose behind all of this and the reason we exist is to get capital to growth businesses. And you've had an amazing journey, Alison. I love your mission. 
you always just sound like you're bursting with energy. <laughs> Look, I, I love the story and I love what I do. And I think in the end, if there's any sort of young people who listen, and I say that to my son, who ironically, you know, is, is, you talk about father and son talking to both of you, father and son working here. My single advice to him is if you don't enjoy the work you do, for goodness sake, just don't do it. Find something else. You have to love what you do. I think that's so important because, I mean, one of the reasons I started doing this podcast series and wanted to focus on people who do things differently is that I think we need more of that and people becoming more aware of how you can succeed by thinking about the world differently and doing things differently. So I just really wanted to have people like yourself to be able to talk about these stories because I think they're genuinely remarkable. It's what investing is all about, really, isn't it? Finding entrepreneurs and finding companies that can do things differently and hopefully stick with those that can be genuine disruptors. And be adaptable as well, because no one has all the answers. No one's got a map of where the world's going. You have to adapt to what is changing in front of you. If I had my life again, I would absolutely have tried to set up and do things at an earlier stage. I'm in my 60s now. I still feel as if I'm in my 20s. But your energy is not at the same levels as when you're in your 20s. And you can take hits harder when you're in your 20s. I talk to my children and say, look, you know, don't be frightened of the risk. Be absolutely confident in your beliefs. And also don't be embarrassed if you get something wrong. There's nothing wrong. We all make mistakes. Everybody does. Learn from the mistakes. That should be the inspiration. But for goodness sake, don't just sit there quietly in room and never ask a question and never know the answer. Because that's just such a sad thing to do in life. The institutional acceptance of failure is something that the Americans seem to have ahead of us Europeans. I don't think it's just Brits. You know, I think our traditional way of looking at the world, people who fail are viewed as failures. But you're right with the statement, and I think this is something that the British people have to accept in a different way, which is, you know, failure doesn't mean that you failed in your life at all, quite the reverse. I've had plenty of failures in my life, and you have to bounce back. I got to a stage, I set up a business a long time ago, which did go bust. And, you know, I'd sell my house and all sort of things. And, and you learn from it. You actually learn who your friends are. You learn who your friends aren't. And you get very sad and depressed and annoyed and all sorts of things that go on. And then you come back and you won't get defeated. And I think that's really important. You know, if you're going to enter this space of setting up businesses and being an entrepreneur, you are taking risk. And if you don't like that risk, I'm not saying everybody should, absolutely everybody shouldn't do this. I think the world would be a terrible place if everybody would try to be an entrepreneur. But I think you know there are certain things. There's nothing wrong having failed. I look at people who come and want to work at Aquis, and I really like it, actually, if they have a failure on their CV. It's a big tick in the box for me. Alistair, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our chat. I could carry on talking. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Good luck. I think you're doing a great job, selfishly as a shareholder, but more philosophically and more importantly, just for what you're doing for the ecosystem that we all work in and for the wider country. I mean, the wider economy. I mean, we need to develop ways of managing our capital markets, our stock exchanges more efficiently. And it's fantastic. So hopefully we can have another conversation at a later date. Love to chat to you some more, but thank you very much. Not at all. Thank you very much. I've been a real pleasure to talk to both of you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, 
in the company of mavericks.com where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. 